Let's pray to begin this part of our gathering together. Thank you, Lord, for the blessing of access to your presence. Thank you for the, um, the place to be here this morning and this time set aside and for a rhythm that's been established and reinforced for many of us and courage for some of us to come and start something new today and, and consider that maybe God has something to say to the pain that we're experiencing or the pain that those we love are experiencing. I pray for grace and clarity and that this time together would be helpful to each of us and that it would be glorifying to you. In the name of Jesus, amen. Welcome to Emmaus Church. Great to see you. Glad you've joined us today. Raise your hand if you'd like a Bible. I'm going to preach uh, out of Acts chapter 16, and I'll find the page number here quickly. 771, Brother Thomas with the page number. Uh, 771. Also, there are sermon notes pages. This might be helpful to follow along. Um, and there's some, you know, there's some dates and upcoming things on the back and ways to contact the church with questions or comments. If you are new with us, we'd love to send you home with a bag of freshly roasted coffee beans. So if, you're, if you meet somebody who's new, just you, it's your job. You find a cup of, or a bag of beans um, outside those doors and, and make sure that folks feel welcomed and uh, embraced here with us. Thanks for joining us online. Grateful that you've joined us today. Pray that this will be a meaningful, powerful experience for you wherever you are as well. In the last few weeks, my house has undergone significant change. <laughs> um, my household has changed. My 18-year-old son, who's our second of three kids, moved to Southern California for college. And, um, you know, everything's different. It, it's a good thing that he's gone to college, but it just feels like such a disruption. Uh, everything in the house is different. It feels more quiet. Um, meals feel different. The food in the fridge lasts more than a couple of days. Yeah. Um, and, and this isn't the first time we've experienced this. My, my oldest, my daughter, she went to school two years ago, and, and that was a, a big shift. But every time it shifts, it's different. Everything, every time it's unique. And it's challenging, right? Our home, our household, it feels this change deeply every time. The atmosphere is, is different. The relational dynamic feels different. In just a short amount of time, we've gone from a family of five, four of whom have driver's licenses and pretty much are adults, and so all we're talking about is high school and college and jobs. And now, just you know, fast forward a few months, and it's my wife Carmen and I barely holding on to our 40s and our 11-year-old son. Um, and so now we're a whole different kinds of conversations and a whole different speed and way more need for, for uh, personal attention and engagement there. And there's nobody else. It's just me and Carm. Like, we've got you know, to jump in and, and get back to the Legos and stuff like that. <laughs> so we're trying to figure it out, um, and, but it's a big change. We're the, so here's, we're the same family... It's the same house, but the household's different. You follow me? Who the house holds, literally, has changed. My point is not that change is good or that change is bad. It's simply that it's different, and because it's different, it's challenging, and we're not used to it yet. Uh, we're struggling to get there most of the time. 
Today, I want to wrap up our Pentecost series. It's called Love and Power. We've been looking through the book of Acts, asking the question, what does it mean to be filled with the Holy Spirit? And we've been praying, Lord, fill us with your Holy Spirit, because we see such, what we see happening in the household of faith in the book of Acts, in the early Christian community, is such remarkable love and such remarkable power as a direct result of being filled with the Holy Spirit of God. And so then the common response to reading story after story after story like this is, and it's been the response of the church for generations, it's to say, we need more of this. Like, this is what we're looking for. This is what we need. We need powerful love. And we need loving power. And we need to be filled with the Holy Spirit. In other words, the result of being filled with the Holy Spirit that we read in Acts, that is preached whenever Acts is preached, the Holy Spirit scenes that are typically held up and celebrated and so amazing and they're so wonderful. It's easy to think that's what we need. This is what we want. This is what will solve all of the problems. And so there are whole movements in church history where it's like, get back to Acts, right? Get back to the early church. Or those wired a little differently will say, we need a fresh Pentecost. We need a new filling of the Holy Spirit. Today I want to invite us to consider that the work of the Holy Spirit, the love and the power that emanates from the very presence of God, may be more intense than we could ever anticipate. It may be like that habanero pepper that you tried one time just to see like, because everyone says they're so hot, and so then you try it. And it's way hotter than you thought it was. All right, that one didn't land very well. Maybe it's, um, maybe it's like childbirth. Like uh, you were told this will be the hardest thing you've ever done. And then you go through and it's like way more challenging than, than you thought. Right, Rob? Right? Maybe it's like that chance meeting that happened apparently like accidentally so many years ago and then slowly it evolved and developed and you became friends and then you fell in love and then you got married and then you had kids and you look back and you're like, that almost didn't happen. And look at the significant impact that this thing has had on us and on so many people all around us. It was that you look back and you go, it didn't seem to really matter that much and yet the significance of that one day Fast forward, I don't know how many years for you, way more than you can imagine at the time. When the followers of Jesus are filled with the Holy Spirit, all kinds of good things happen. They become bold. They become courageous. They heal people. They love people. They revere God. They depend on God. And, and this is what's so easy to miss, some really challenging things happen as well. The Holy Spirit pushes them way beyond their comfort zones. The Holy Spirit takes them to places they never imagined going. And the Holy Spirit disrupts their lives on a profoundly personal level. Nobody escapes this. Their households change. Okay. Who their households changes. And they change specifically in two ways. The households get wider and the household gets deeper. Today I want to make a final observation about being filled with the Holy Spirit about, as part of this, uh, this series called Love and Power. And what I want to do is follow this theme of household through Acts chapter 16. Now five weeks ago, Melissa, our worship director, she preached a sermon on worship out of Acts chapter 16. I'm going to 
read some of the same stories that she read, but I want to focus our attention specifically on the expanding and deepening household of the Christian faith that we see emerge in Acts chapter 16. Acts chapter 16 launches Paul's second of three missionary journeys. The the chapter starts with the story of Paul choosing his ministry partner for this journey. It's a young man named Timothy. Now, if Paul's selection of Timothy was covered the way sports writers cover like the NFL draft today, there would have been, you know, all these writers who are sort of, you know, wondering and and offering their opinions about who should pick what player for what reason and how it will impact the team going forward. If this, if his selection were treated something like that, almost nobody would have Timothy getting picked in the first round. Right? And almost nobody would have had Timothy being picked by Team Paul for their number one choice for this season. And the reason is simple. Timothy's mom is Jewish, but his dad is Greek. So at this point in history, nearly all Christians are Jewish. But the main pressure on the Christian church is from the Jewish establishment. The Christians are seen as a sect, as a cult, as a aberration. They've, they've embraced the wrong Messiah. So most Christians have a Jewish background. They still consider themselves Jewish, and yet the pressure is coming from the Jewish establishment. Strict Jews, that is to say good Jews, they already have a hard time with Paul theologically because he's embraced Christ. Now they're going to have a really significant reason to point at a cultural problem with Paul. We might say a racial problem with Paul in his choosing Timothy, because Timothy is not part of the household of Abraham. He's not seen as a legitimate Jew. He's not part of the household of God from a certain perspective. Paul knows that adding Timothy, a man who is both Jewish and Greek, is going to be an easy target for his his, um, opponents. And so he does two really surprising things. The first thing he does is he circumcises Timothy. Specifically, Luke tells us, because of the Jews who lived in that area, for they all knew his father was Greek. And then the second surprising thing Paul does is he goes ahead and takes Timothy with him as his first pick for this missionary journey. So he seems to respond to the concerns of the Jewish establishment with one action but ultimately sort of disregards the concerns of the Jewish establishment with the second action. The church fathers are full of debate about what this means, why this happens, was it a good idea, a bad idea, what was his real motive? There's even a major church father who says that Paul is lying at this point, which is a very strong thing to say. In other words, he's he's gesturing one way and another way to get people to kind of go, what's happening here? Now, later in verse six, or in chapter 16, verse 11, we see a word that has not been used in this way yet in Acts. We see the word we. Luke, who writes this book, Acts, he's been the voice of the narrator since the book started. He now stops using the plural pronoun they to refer to Paul and all of his traveling companions. And he replaces the plural pronoun they from Chapter 16 forward with the personal plural pronoun, we, indicating that now Luke, who has up to this point been basing his 
history of the church on the accounts of others, on the testimony of others, he now is shifting to personal witness. He now has joined the team as well. Now, why is this important? Because Luke is a full-blown Gentile, right? He is not a Jew. He is the only writer of a biblical book who's not Jewish. This is a really big deal. So here comes Team Paul for missionary trip number two, and it includes Paul, who is a Jewish Pharisee, like super Jew, turned Jesus evangelist, so nobody knows what to do with him. They just don't like him. It includes uh, Timothy, who is Jewish and Greek, and it includes Luke, a Greek, or not Greek maybe, but a Gentile, a non-Jewish doctor. Can you see the Holy Spirit preparing to expand the household of God with this second missionary journey? You see the writing on the wall. All right, let's look at three stories together out of chapter 16 of Acts. The first is the story of Lydia, the first Christian convert. The first convert of this missionary trip to Europe is this woman named Lydia. Chapter 16, verse 13, Luke writes, On the Sabbath, we, first time, on the Sabbath, we went outside the city gate to the river where we expected to find a, pray, a place of prayer. By the way, where would you typically find Paul on the Sabbath? In the synagogue. Why isn't he at the synagogue on this Sabbath day? Because there are no Jewish synagogues where he is right now, right? We're not in Kansas anymore, Dorothy, right? He's in Philippi. There's no Jewish established worship centers there, so he goes to the river. He's not taking a break from church. He's just going to the river. That's where he's going to pray. And then it, uh, Luke says, we sat down. We began to speak to the women who had gathered there. One of those listening was a woman from the city of Thyatira named Lydia, a dealer in purple cloth. She was a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to respond to Paul's message. So she's not Jewish, but she worships God. And so that's interesting. And now she responds to Paul's message, which is the message of the resurrected Jesus Christ, who has come into the world to rescue the whole world. That's Paul's message. And Lydia embraces it. So here's where Lydia embraces Jesus as her Lord, her Savior. We would say this is where Lydia welcomes Christ into her life. Luke continues, verse 15. When she and the members of her household were baptized, she invited us to her home. If you consider me a believer in the Lord, she said, come and stay at my house. And she persuaded us. This is fascinating. Lydia says, if you consider me a believer in the Lord, not if you consider me a a great woman, not if you consider me a, a successful businesswoman, not if you consider me a devout woman, if you consider me a believer in the Lord. In other words, if you actually believe there's room in the household of God for me, then come to my household and stay there for a few days. Hospitality is Lydia's response to being saved by Jesus. And it's not what we might see as kind of polite or maybe even obligatory, like have the coffee, have the pastor over for a cup of coffee kind of thing. This is come live with us. Come be part of our household. Like while you're in this part of the world, we're your family. 
This is your home base. Come stay with us. Be a part of our household. This is the depth of hospitality which follows Lydia's conversion to Christ. And the church fathers are careful to note that full acceptance of her hospitality is the apostles' response to Lydia being saved by Jesus. You follow me? So Lydia says, be part of my household. And that's the sign that Lydia has embraced Christ. Paul and others say, we will be part of your household. And that's their response to Lydia's declaration of faith in Christ. And it's their way of saying, you are as much a part of the household of God as we. This is powerful. The Holy Spirit is pushing the walls of the household of faith wider, beyond the people of Israel. The household is expanding. And did you notice this, that not just Lydia in the river, but her whole household is baptized? So the household is growing wider, multiple ethnicities, multiple nations are coming into the family of God, and the household is growing deeper, including multiple generations. In other words, Lydia's conversion to Christ is so thorough, her whole household is affected. If we think of the work of the Holy Spirit like rain on a dusty, dry, arid ground, the work of the Holy Spirit is not just sprinkling on the surface. It's saturating all the way down. It's affecting generations, everyone in her household. Now, Paul and Lydia's story in Acts 16 sounds a lot like another story about Peter, another one of Jesus' apostles, and a man named Cornelius like six chapters earlier. If you have your Bibles or your phones, look at Acts 10. We'll take a peek here. This is our second story. Earlier in Acts, in response to a vision from the Holy Spirit, Peter enters the house of a Roman centurion. And he has to explain this several times going forward because Jewish, like good little Jewish boys like Peter, they don't go into houses of Romans, especially, you could argue, Roman centurions. This is a man of, of, of some sort of authority within the, the Roman military. Then Peter preaches the gospel to Cornelius, that's his name, and his whole household, and Peter witnesses them being filled with the Holy Spirit. Then in Acts 10.45, Luke writes this, Acts 10.45, the circumcised believers, and it just cracks me up. I just think that's the greatest way to refer to these Jewish Christians. Like, just call it what it is, Luke, right? They're the circumcised believers. Remember, Luke's a Gentile, so he's like, you guys do what you need to do. But like, and he just calls it what it is. I heard someone say, uh, pastors see people at their best. Um, lawyers see people at their worst. Doctors see people as they are. So here we have Dr. Luke going, you know, I don't really have a lot of need for your religious traditions. Let's just call them what they are. They're the circumcised believers, okay? And the rest of us are, the, are, the, are those who are not. I just think that's so funny. I don't know what that says about me. The circumcised believers who had come with Peter. Now, these are not Jewish establishment stiffs, right? These are 
These are part of Peter's team. But they're from a Jewish background, just like Peter. They were astonished that the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out even on Gentiles. For they heard them speaking in tongues and praising God. Then Peter said, can anyone keep these people from being baptized in water? They have received the Holy Spirit just as we have. So he ordered that they be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. Peter understands the baptism of the Spirit as evidence that God has fully accepted these Gentiles into the family or into the household of God. The Holy Spirit is pushing Peter's understanding of the household of God wider. This is not just for Jews. It includes Gentiles who believe in Jesus. And the Holy Spirit is pushing Peter's understanding of the depth of the household of God. He's pushing it deeper. This, isn't not, this is about the whole, the whole household. This is about multiple generations. This is what the Holy Spirit is doing, revealing that the household of God is wider than Peter first understood, and it's deeper than Peter um, first understood. You could argue... Um, if that household element had not been included in this story, especially at this time in history, Acts 10, that Cornelius' conversion was an exception, that Cornelius' conversion to Christ was, uh, was uh, unusual, was not the norm. Um, maybe it doesn't happen again, but see, you can't argue that because it's not just for the head of the household, it's for the whole household, right? Everybody in the house gets baptized, now, this happens in the ministry of Peter. It happens in the ministry of Paul. The Holy Spirit is filling people with love and power whom no one expected would be filled with love and power and embraced into the household of God. So this is blowing people's minds. And the church is quickly becoming multicultural. So far in Acts, we've got Ethiopians, Greeks, Romans, and Europeans, not just Jews, who are part of the, the household of faith. And it's becoming multi-generational, not just heads of households. Early Jewish history, you're only reading about the men. Now we're reading about men and women and whole households. <laughs> Essentially, we could put it like this. The Holy Spirit is not playing by the rules that men wrote. The Holy Spirit is coloring outside the lines. The Holy Spirit is disturbing the status quo. And this all sounds wonderful. But friends, this is literally the kind of change that the church has so much trouble with. Is it not? Like we think this is amazing, it's beautiful and wonderful because we're comfortable with the expansion that we're reading about thus far. But this kind of change is really difficult to adjust to once we translate it into our situations. And we shouldn't be surprised, though we are surprised. Jesus himself said the wind blows wherever it wants to. No one knows where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with anyone born of the Spirit. When you're filled with the Holy Spirit, you're going to be um, used by the Holy Spirit, led by the Holy Spirit, prompted, guided, in some ways um, driven. That's what Jesus is in the, in the temptations, driven by the Holy Spirit into whatever the Spirit's agenda is. Sign up for being uncomfortable, right? Sign up for being challenged. Sign up for facing situations and ethical dilemmas that you've never had to navigate before. And, and then recognize that here's where this real-life dependence on the Spirit of God becomes practical. And here's why we need to be filled with the Holy Spirit. Yes, we have the Word of God, and the Spirit will never contradict the Word of God. 
But we're facing situations, I'm facing situations where I need guidance that isn't lit, like explicitly spelled out for me in the word of God. I need the power and the love of the Holy Spirit to face this ever-changing household of my life and, and the household of, of faith. The Spirit empowers, encourages, heals, unifies. And what I'm trying to say is there's a sense in which the Spirit also disrupts. The Spirit does not disrupt in a chaotic way. The Spirit is not disorganized. That's Paul's argument. He's not out of order. It's not disruption that feels like anarchy. But it is a disruption in the sense that the Spirit is going to do stuff that is beyond our expectations. Maybe more than we're comfortable with. He might point us to something that is frankly just too much for us to handle. Here's a final story. As Luke and Timothy and, and, and Paul and Silas and the whole team Paul, they go on this second missionary journey. They're guided by the Holy Spirit. They disrupt culturally acceptable forms of oppression and corruption. Of course they do, and so of course they're thrown in jail, right? Several weeks ago, Melissa brilliantly described the scene at the end of Acts chapter 16, where at midnight, Paul and Silas, who are the two arrested and beaten in this instance, are bound in chains, they're in the inner cell of the prison, and yet they're singing hymns at midnight, they're worshiping God. And then an earthquake shakes the very foundations of the prison. Chains break loose. Doors fly open. Prisoners are freed. And the jailer, out of shame, whose name is not even recorded by Luke, is about to kill himself. When Paul shouts out, wait, we're all here. To which the jailer responds with this powerful question. What must I do to be saved? So, <laughs> the jailer, the jailer, he doesn't even get named. Nobody expects this guy to be a part of the story of redemption. He is the symbol of oppression. He is the leader of the thugs who beat Paul and Silas a few hours ago. He gave them permission He's in charge, and now he actually thinks, based on what he's witnessing, there might be room in the household of God for him. And so he asks this powerful question, what is it going to take? I want to be a part of this family too. Is there room for me here? What do I need to do to be saved? Now listen to Paul and Silas's response. And listen as I read to how often they use this word. The word is oikos in some form. The Greek word, it's translated house or household. This is back to chapter 16, verse 31. This is their response to his question. They reply, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your household. Then they spoke the word of the Lord to him. And to all the others in his house. At that hour of the night, the jailer took them and washed their wounds, and immediately he and all his household were baptized. The jailer brought them into his house, 
and set a meal before them. Friends, do you see how personal this change is? Do you see how intimate this change is? Do you see how entire this is, how thorough this is? It's at the core of who he is. You can't, you can't do this any better in this culture. Come into my house, have a meal, and then, um, and, he, and he begins to dress their wounds. And it says, he was filled with joy. Why is he filled with joy? Because he had come to believe in God, he and his whole household. These stories of the work of the Holy Spirit, on one hand, they're so astonishing, they're so amazing, they're so supernatural, they're so mind-blowing that we think, man, how is this, how is this even happening, right? Iron doors blowing open, right? And at the same time, these wonders are taking place. What's the context for some of these things? real life, basic context of people's homes, right? <laughs> Unfolded laundry on the couch. Your, your, your teenager socks under the kitchen table, right? Stuff not, the basic, like, intimate, familiar, where it matters most context of the home, of the household. Not only is the Spirit expanding the church's vision, of who is welcome in the household of God. In other words, their understanding of the household is getting wider. The gospel's also being received and responded to in the very familiar, very personal place of the home, not out there somewhere, not on some neutral site, but right at the core with those whose lives are most intimately connected with the ones whose names we get to hear, their household, those who share a living space with them. And they're responded, they're embraced, and the response is these simple yet powerful acts of hospitality. We'll feed you at our table, and we'll take care of your wounds. We'll welcome you at our table, and we'll take care of your wounds. Why do they do that? Because the gospel of Jesus is not just for apostles like Peter and Paul. The gospel of Jesus is for children and for grandparents and for cousins who are having a rough time, and so they're staying with us. And the gardener who's living in our house or whatever the situations happened to be, it's for the whole household. Because the water of the Spirit doesn't just hit the surface, it soaks all the way through and saturates the whole household. And they're all baptized. And then finally, remember the story of Lydia, the first story I told? The first convert in, in, in Europe, the one at the river? This story circles back. Acts 16 Continues on, there's more political conflict, there's more confrontation because the Romans are abusing their power. And, but then I noticed this very last verse in this chapter, and I noticed it for the first time this last week. The very last verse of chapter 16, Luke writes this. It's just fascinating to me. After Paul and Silas came out of prison, they went to Lydia's house. They went to Lydia's house, where they met with the brothers and the sisters and they encouraged them. And then they left. So at the beginning of the chapter, get this, there's no Christians in Europe. And then Lydia is the first. And by the end of the chapter, Paul and Silas return to Lydia's house, which is filled with not just a bunch of random people, 
but with brothers and sisters. And they encourage one another, all a part of the same household of God. Isn't that incredible? That's powerful to me. Let's pray together. Thank you, Lord. Fill us with your vision for your household. Help us to hang on loosely to the things that we want to be the way we want to be. (laughs) Help us to trust your guidance. Help us to be saturated in the truth and the word. To navigate complicated situations going, going forward. But save us from this restrictive, protective isolationism that keeps us just like, I'm just going to guard what I'm comfortable with. And help us, Lord, to, to follow the continuing work of your Holy Spirit as the household of God is, it goes wider and goes deeper all of the time. May we be fully saturated. May those with whom we share life with most intimately be filled with your Holy Spirit. We look to you for help and guidance. Lord, restore your church for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.